Hey everyone, I'm pleased to be joined today by Sonia Orlu, a teaching assistant at Simon Fraser University who's also involved with the McDonald laurie Institute. She's got a lot to say on all of the big and current issues surrounding race relations, identity politics, and more, and we are certainly happy to give her a platform here today to share her views, but apparently not every organization feels that way. One Canadian news outlet actually recently deleted a story about Miss Orlu's views because, well, according to them, because of its potential negative impact. Uh-oh, what on earth is going on? Let's break it all down today with Sonia Orlu. Hey, Sonia, thanks for joining us. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having this discussion that uh, kind of bizarrely caused this this odd controversy out there because of your perspectives on Black Lives Matter, and particularly a news story that went up by News 1130. That's a news outlet over on the West Coast about how Black Lives Matter resorts to, quote, emotional blackmail, argues uh, a black Simon Fraser University academic. Headline, of course, referring to yourself. Before we talk about this this odd thing that happened and uh, the ensuing, I guess, mini debacle, uh, tell us about your perspective on, on Black Lives Matter and emotional blackmail. <laughs> right. So um, I authored a, a commentary piece um, that was published by the McDonald Laurier Institute, and this was titled "Why I Do Not Support Black, the Black Lives Matter Movement." So I, I specifically took aim at the Black Lives Matter movement um, and try to interrogate the the assertion that Black people are system, systematically targeted for demise, uh, especially by by the police. Uh, in the United States, because we have much more data there. Um, but I also looked at uh, the Canadian context a little bit. So I argued, uh, again, referring to the data, that um, this is not reality, <laughs> uh, that black people are being targeted, um, that black lives matter uh, sort, sort of uh, zooms in on a few cases um, and uh, sort of uses the uh, uses, uses, cases to to make the narrative that uh, America is a fundamentally uh, systematically racist nation and and that the, the police system there uh, it was specifically sort of uh, I guess engineered or developed to to target black people and we, we are seeing that today with, with the killing of people like George Floyd or Mike Brown or any of the other ones um, but but that's not necessarily the case I mean as of uh, 2020, uh, police shootings have actually gone down tremendously, and the the, the amount of uh, non non resisting arrests, innocent, uh, unarmed people killed by the police are very 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 uh, minuscule. Uh, and not to talk about the white people or people of all the races that are also uh, are also killed by the police. So it's not necessarily. Police brutality is an issue, um, quite all right, but it's not a race issue, and we, we have no evidence to support the assertion that black people are specifically being targeted, not in the United States and not in Canada here as well. So that was essentially the crux of my argument. Yeah, a lot of people uh, don't respond well to that data you know, being brought up. I, I know that there were a number of news, news organizations and commentators who wanted to draw attention to the fact that uh, in terms of unarmed persons being killed by police in America, unarmed black persons, I think on average the number is about 10 a year, which, I mean, unarmed people should not be killed by police, so I don't want to say it's only 10. I think mm -hmm. it would be ideal if the number was zero and we should yeah, work towards yeah. it, it getting to zero. But then at the same time, I, I guess to your point, when people are holding up placards saying, you know, please stop killing us, referring to 
unarmed black people being killed, you know, all over the place in the United States that I guess, as you say, well, the data doesn't actually show that the numbers are massive. You know, let's talk about that data. But I guess as your experience is found and, and well, you know, many other people want to bring it up, that there's a lot of a lot of hostility to bringing up that data and having that conversation. Yeah, so it's it's quite, uh, I guess, illuminating the way people, some people want to portray the plight of, of uh, people of African descent living in the United States or in Canada. Um, it's, I, I don't understand what they, what they, uh, what they hope to get out of painting uh, African Americans or Black Canadians as these sort of endangered species of people who are being being systematically targeted or systemically being targeted by by the respective societies that they that they live in. So we see this this general uh, pushback from activist groups, from people who support them, from political parties who buy into that narrative. Uh, we see this pushback that that really is grounded more in emotional rhetoric and emotional arguments than it is in the data. And that's not to say that we can't have compassionate data sort of analysis or, or use data for compassionate uh, um, measures. But when you are creating a narrative that, that um, makes a regular, ordinary, and average black person scared for their lives, um, that is very harmful to, to quality of life. Like, personally speaking, I, I remember in the height of, uh, after the, the Mike Brown um, shooting and, and the whole rise of the Black Lives Matter movement at that time, I was so scared to be in the presence of a police officer because I thought that mm. that was just something that could happen. Like a, a police officer could pull out a gun and shoot me for no just cause. And you have a lot of people who have that mindset today that society is out to get them, that the cops are out to get them. And and that doesn't necessarily do well for, for mental health or for, for good quality of life of people. So I, I, I try as much as possible to 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 use the data to counter a lot of these narratives and to, to, to tell people who are like me that, no, you can go ahead and live your life as, as, as best as you want to. There's no one chasing you. There's no one looking to, to, to wipe you off of the face of the earth. There's no one who hates you that much um, that, that they would, they would, they, you're better off dead to them. And, and I think that that, 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 that rhetoric, that, that narrative, that, that black people are worthless or that black people are are disposable, I think it does more harm than good. And that's what actually fueled this uh, commentary paper on my end at least. It was it started up as a as a sort of explanatory piece to my to my friends and loved ones who were feeling so so sort of torn down by by the narrative that was that was being spread around uh, just right after um, the George Floyd uh, killing. So that's the way I approach things. Like I, I tend to to go more to the data, and I know we'll talk about critical race theory <laughs> later on, and data isn't necessarily something that they like to um, um, sort of uh, work with. Uh, they, they, they look more to subjective reasoning than objective reasoning. Uh, but I think that ob objective reasoning has, has brought so much good, um, so much so much prosperity, so much, so much of a better life for, for people of color everywhere, and, and we need to stick with that. Uh, and and in, in, in that instance, eschew any attempt whatsoever 
to characterize uh, the experience of people people of color uh, in this single story of oppression and victimhood and marginalization. Uh, is that w what you feel is really going on here, that it's a patronizing conversation? I mean, I know we hear that a lot from prominent black Republicans and conservatives in the United States. Uh, the victimhood phrase is one that's used a lot, and that's the thing that they're they're getting increasingly uh, frustrated with. At the same time, to some degree in, 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 the, in the broader public narrative, I feel like those things are only just ramping up. How do you see it? Oh, very much so. And I, I don't consider myself to be a conservative in any, in any sense of the word, but there is a, a lot of the narrative, uh, narratives that are coming out from from people on the left, especially this, the progressive side of the spectrum, is very much couched in sort of this paternalistic, infantilizing uh, sort of understanding of, of um, how black people should be treated. So it, it's, again, I, I, I question the, the, the objective here, the goal here, like is it to to treat black people as equals, uh, or is it to to baby them or to think that they can't act as uh, autonomous uh, beings in, in their own right? So I, I don't think that that's the, I, I think it's very very disingenuous on anyone's part to characterize uh, any attempt to critique the victimhood narrative that's coming out from certain aspects of, of society as, as being a conservative sort of talking point. I, in my, in my um, sort of foray online and all the people I've, I've been fortunate to meet since my paper sort of came out, um, they, these are people from very diverse backgrounds and they all hold the, 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 the opinion that, that black people aren't these second class citizens that we need to I guess perpetually cuddle um, and and sort of wrap in this bubble where the white liberal quote unquote uh, now takes on the role of the savior, right? That takes on the role of of the rescuer, the one who gives us a platform, the one who amplifies our voices because we for some reason we can't do that ourselves. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that there is. There is a need for people of all backgrounds, of all political, of all sides of political spectrum to counter that, that narrative. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to bring up, the sort of white savior scenario. Uh, what do you think is the biggest challenge here? I know you mentioned Black Lives Matter uh, participating in emotional blackmail, but it seems like uh, white saviors or what have you, they actually are very eager to be emotionally blackmailed or what have you. I, I mean... When, when I see images, particularly uh, in the wake of the George Floyd killings, uh, there's young black men going to the streets in America, uh, some of them voicing some very earnest passion and frustration. And I go, okay, like, you know, I'm a advocate of democracy and making your voice heard. So go out there and say what you got to say about, about police accountability. I, I, more when I look at the white savior scenario and I wonder what's, what's going on here? What's the, what's the psychology behind all of this is sort of white liberal uh, trying to get in on their hashtag uh, credentials and so forth. I mean, I mean, what do you think about the interplay between all of that? Um, well, I would, I would actually divide the, the white savior into two camps. You have the people who are genuinely um, hurt or frustrated by the way uh, people of color have been historically treated in North America, uh, who then feel the responsibility to remedy those harms. Right. Right. Um, so it's kind of uh, what uh, the, the writer Chimamanda Adichie calls uh, self, sorry, well-meaning pity. Hmm. Right? It, it, it comes from a good place, but it, it overcompensates. Um, and it's, it's like 
very, um, I guess, need to to ensure that whatever harms that that occur in the part, past don't replicate themselves in the future, uh, without really taking into consideration how much the future, or sorry, how much the present and the future are not necessarily the same. It it, it overlooks the progress that I've been, that, that we've achieved so far. Um, and, and cast the plight of, of people of color, quote unquote, uh, in the light of what has happened in the past. Right? Rather than seeing people of color as they are today, they see people of color uh, through the lens of the past. So mm. that, in the, that in a sense is, is it's, I, I wouldn't say that's malicious, it's just very misinformed um, and uh, perhaps ignorant in, in, in some areas. Uh, but then you have the other side, the ones who are political opportunists, right? Right. the white that are political opportunists who see this as an avenue to amass um, political power. So this is these are the ones that sort of play on the, the plight of, of uh, issues surrounding people of color, bring up this very toxic narrative, this, this, this illusion of hatred, um, and... Use, use that to sort of fill their own ambitions. So, for instance, if you if you actually look at the data, commentary or or uh, sort of narratives around uh, Black Lives Matter, white supremacy, uh, hate, and all of that usually ramp up during election periods or right before election periods, especially mm. in the United States. Right, um, it, it, it's become a tactic to sort, of, to sort of drive people to the polls to vote for uh, specific candidates or specific political parties. So, well, there's that famous Joe Biden line, uh, Joe Biden line, where he says, uh, "Okay, you've got to vote Democrat now because the Republicans." He said they want to put y'all back in chains. Those were the, that was the exact <laughs> phraseology, and, and to your point, that was said right before an election time. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, when you have people like that who feel that they need to come across as saving uh, black people or other people of color, and you can only achieve sort of the utopia that you dream of if you vote for them. Right. Um, not, not taking into consideration that every single time that people of color have voted for them, nothing has really come out of it. So it's like you say the same thing every four years and people continue to buy into the rhetoric and, and you attach uh, the the illusion of of equality to your own cause, even though it, it really doesn't, you don't really help the cause at all. Um, but that helps you in in the political realm, and, and so it, it's kind of like the idea that all black people vote Democrat, right? Oh, yeah. Or uh, all black people in Canada here vote the Liberal Party. So it, it's 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 almost like a no brainer right now that. That's the assumption of many people, so much so that other parties really don't put a lot of effort in in trying to get the black vote, because it's assumed that if you're black, you automatically vote for whatever party is on the left. When in 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 actuality, um, black people are actually more conservative than their white liberal counterparts, right? And, and you have a lot of uh, a lot of um, Black people who who feel that because the 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 illusion of equality 
is tied to liberalism, and I use that in a very loose sense, and, and, and parties on the left sort of, sort of uh, I guess, have a monopoly on the idea of liberalism. They have to vote for that, otherwise they'll be voting against their interests. Um, when, if you actually look at their preferences, their behavior, their lifestyle, they will actually fall better under some conservative type mm. or conservative leading parties. Um, and so in many instances, black people vote against their interests by voting liberal or by voting Democrat. Uh, but but because we have that white savior narrative tied to parties on the left, black people tend to just vote uh, because that's the assumed thing to do. Sonia, you say something very interesting, though, when you talked about other parties not even pursuing that vote. And, and perhaps, you know, if you never say to someone, please vote for me, that's going to, you know, get in the way of that person considering you as a voting option. I want to get your thoughts on what's happening in America uh, more recently on the political spectrum. It was seen that Donald Trump during re-election bid really wanted to pursue the black vote more aggressively than he had before. I remember when Mitt Romney lost uh, pretty badly and really bad uh, in terms of the black vote. Uh, the GOP said, okay, we got to do this investigation. They did this 2012 look into why are we so out of touch with LGBT and African-Americans and, and all these different groups and so forth. And they did this whole post-mortem. I'm not really sure what came of it. It was just, you know, like most reports, it just kind of sits on the shelf. And he did do very poorly, Mitt Romney. Donald Trump did a lot better with the black vote in 2016, and he did even a lot better more in 2020, really growing it. And and, and some people say it's just because he decided, I, I want to pursue this vote. I want these people to vote for me. And people like Mitt Romney just never really bothered to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, the GOP has been traditionally known as the party of old white men. Right. And um, that, that, kind of, that kind of stuck as an identity for them for a while. And I think they're trying to break out of that, that identity right now with reaching out to more uh, black individuals and communities. So um, with, with Donald Trump, I think he was a very unique candidate. I don't think that if it was a Jeb Bush or right. um, a Paul Ryan or any of the other ones that you would have had that enthusiasm with, with uh, black voters. Um, I think there, there, there was, there's something unique about him as a person, as a businessman, as a politician, that sets him apart from from uh, other other uh, old white men, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. So it, it, I I think it, that it points to a very positive um, uh, development for for the Republican Party in the, in the U.S. I, I, I see there there are a lot of uh, African Americans that are running for office under the Republican uh, umbrella. Right. Uh, there, there's a lot of social media sort of outreach uh, by existing um, conservative or Republican um, uh, members towards Black individuals and Black communities. Uh, and the the very interesting thing, at least from what I've seen, is that they tend to they. <laughs> Uh, there is this analogy that was made by by one of the more prominent uh, black uh, Republicans. Just like there is a, I, I don't know if you've watched uh, Fresh Fresh Prince, Prince of Bel Air. Oh yes, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like there is the there's a Carlton Republican, and then there's the uh, the Will Smith character. I, 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 Honestly, I didn't watch it, <laughs> so I can't really remember their name. But there's a Carlton Republican, and then there's a Will Smith uh, type of Republican, and that uh, um, 
they need to, there's an emphasis on the need to reach out to people who, who hmm. have different uh, sort of black identities, I guess, that there is no just one size fits all black person. Right. Um, and and the, I guess this person was trying to make, make the case that not all black conservatives are Candace Owens. Um, there are more black conservatives who are more in the hood and and um, and there needs to be a lot more outreach there. Um, so I, I see that happening a lot online and with Donald Trump, I think because he was not that traditional politician, uh, people were more likely, even though he, he, he tends to fib a lot and, and exaggerate and use hyperbole a lot, uh, there was a sense of authenticity to his candidacy that drew in a lot of people that you wouldn't traditionally think would vote Republican. But what's interesting, uh, Sonia, what do you think about the fact that we heard more and more throughout uh, the four years of Donald Trump's term that he was a, a very racist individual. Some people wanted to say he was a, a white supremacist and so forth. And, uh-huh. you know, Mitt Romney didn't really have many of those accusations against him. He fared very poorly with the black vote. We were told uh, in media stories and on social media uh, that Donald Trump was a bad guy when it came to his racial views, and yet he did multiple times better on that vote. What do you think was going on in that phenomenon? I think it's very multifaceted. Um, So we know that there was a concerted media campaign to paint him that way. Uh, And unfortunately, that that also coincided with when people began to heavily distrust the media. with the rise of alternative uh, alternative media, uh, people, a lot of people, especially from, from what you would call marginalized communities, began to flock to these alternative uh, media sites and, and pundits and commentators and all of that. And they're, they're, comparing both was kind of like night and day. So for a lot of people, if you hear something about Donald Trump coming from like someone on CNN or MSNBC, uh, it's more likely, or they're more likely to be distrustful of that narrative than if they hear it coming from like a Stephen Crowder or um, someone else on on the the, the alternative media sites. Uh, so, with that with that shift, and we know that. Uh, people who tend to pay attention to mainstream, mainstream media are usually your upper-class white liberal. Um, and with the way that they painted Donald Trump, who that wasn't the first time he, he was... A, he has always been a public figure. And a lot of people had, in the past, resonated with him because of the way he came across. It's this very in-your-face... Um, uh, not 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 two faced like a regular politician, uh, and there's a sense of authenticity to him. And so, when you have this concerted effort to paint someone in a very very negative manner, people tend to see uh, see through it a lot more than if it was something gradual and more or more subtle. And I think that that's what happened with Donald Trump. I think that the media went full on assault, and it was very transparent that. They were clearly biased. And so you had a lot of people tune that out, especially people who are not upper class, white, or liberal. Um, you had a lot of people who tuned that out um, and uh, embraced more sort of alternative media and their characterization of him. And so during this period, again, we saw the rise of a lot of 
alternative voices. Uh, and the more people began to follow these alternative voices, uh, especially alternative voices in the black community, uh, the more we began to see a lot more support and a lot more rise in the number of people who who uh, wouldn't have otherwise voted for Trump uh, in, right. in, in years prior. So it, it's kind of multifaceted in a way. And it, I don't know if you, if you had a chance to look at the time Pan Magazine piece on, uh, I forget the title, but where they made a claim that they had to fortify the election. Um, this was this was a couple, I, mean, I think it came out this year um, after after the inauguration or something. Uh, they sort of detailed how the like the whole background process on on how uh, the establishment pretty much came together to to make sure that Trump gets re, um, gets voted out um, and. To some people, that was that was, uh, I guess, news to them. But if you had been paying attention mm. to to situation from from twenty fifteen, you would have seen that it was very transparent because there were it became, I guess, a a an obsession on the part of of, of some some people in the in the media and in, in the political establishment, and and a lot of people, I, I believe, saw through that because, personally speaking, for me. Um, I don't think Donald Trump is the worst worst person in the world. Uh, I never bought into that that narrative that he's like a white supremacist or whatever. I don't I don't think that he is an effective leader in 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 the way that uh, many people would want him to be. Uh, but I don't think that he's all bad. And so, and this is not a conclusion I came to later. I, like I saw that right from 2015 when he announced mm. his presidency. Um, and um, I, I began to track the the sort of media narrative that was built around him uh, at that point in time, and it, it did like it, it it was very very heartbreaking to see the media that I thought I trusted uh, sort of in this very blatant misinterpretation right. of a thing just because he was not part of them and he threaten their interests in, in, in many ways. Sonia, I want to get your so. perspectives on the Canadian political scene now. We've talked about the U.S. Here in Canada, yeah. when it comes to, uh, you know, outreach or, or just saying to people, yes, we want your vote and so forth, I think maybe what she said about uh, previously Republicans not really kind of reaching out much, perhaps happening here in Canada as well. I mean, the Conservative Party in Canada does uh, lay claim to the first black member of parliament, the first black uh, federal cabinet minister, that was Lincoln Alexander a number of decades ago. Uh, otherwise, not really seen as being a party that goes out and, and really try and engages uh, with black Canadians all that much. What do you think about what's going on on that whole that whole front there? I think that's their loss. As someone who, I guess, is very sympathetic to to the current uh, conservative platform, especially under Erin O'Toole, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there to to draw in a lot of uh, black individuals and communities. Um, so, the, I think similar to the United States, uh, the Canadian Conservative Party needs to shed that image of the uh, they are the party of the old white man. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I think something else that 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 tends to uh, affect the the black vote, uh, the black conservative vote, is that black people in the, in Canada tend to live in more liberal strongholds. Uh, so whether it's in Toronto or in Vancouver here, um, that's 
it is very, very, very difficult for conservatives to to sort of penetrate these areas. Um, and you don't get as much black people in like the prairies and, and uh, other parts of Canada that that are uh, more uh, that have more of the white population. Uh, but in terms of outreach, I, I think that emphasizing um, sort of uh, autonomy and, and support for for individualism and um, uh, economic. Uh, development, especially for for more marginalized communities, uh, and uh, less of a strict uh, sort of, I guess, insistence on on tradition in many ways. Um, I think that that would go a long way towards towards appealing to to non-white voters uh, for the Conservative Party, um, and and I don't. I don't know what the magic bullet is. I think I think a lot of a lot of black Canadians are already invested in the narrative of liberal equals good. Right. Um, so I I think that uh, the the party needs needs to again marshal out resources um, and empower its already existing um, black co- constituents to sort of go out there and, and sort of spread that message that there are other other alternatives. Uh, there, there, like the fact that you're, that you're black doesn't necessarily mean that you need to vote liberal or NDP or any of the other parties in the left. But there, there are actually tangibles that that um, the Conservative Party. Um, provides for, for Canadians and really list those, make them clear, um, put, put on actionable items on their platform uh, that would not only empower black, black people, but like empower Canadians as, as a whole. Um, I, I think that they should not fall into the trap of trying to play identity politics. Right. <laughs> I think that that turns, turns off a lot of people. Like I don't want to hear first black ex in you. Like I, I, I really don't want to hear it. Like if you, if you if if and this is just me personally speaking, like if you are hyping people's immutable characteristics, um, as opposed to their their merit based characteristics or uh, principles or anything like that, uh, it turns me off personally. Uh, and uh, I'd rather see see people who who are qualified, who have the credentials, who who really care about uh, making it making a difference even though they're black or whether or not they're black, um, sort of go out there and, and, and be the center, center or the face of the conservative party. Sonia, I want to get your thoughts on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who he has a lot to say about these issues. He says, yes, I, I know I wore the blackface multiple times. I was a younger man then. I apologize. Silly thing to do. But, you know, look at me now. I'm taking a knee at the rallies. I'm, I'm doing everything I need to do. Although on a previous episode of this podcast, we had Selena Cesar Chavan on the program. Uh, she was a former liberal MP. And she says Justin Trudeau is a phony. Now, I imagine you and her would disagree on, on some of these issues. She's uh, more amenable, I, I think it's fair to say, to the Black Lives Matter argument argument than, than you've described yourself being. But uh, what do you make of her characterization that, you know, Trudeau's a phony and I guess, yes, in the white savior category? Uh, I definitely think he falls in the in a white savior category um, and specifically in the politically expedient uh, or taking politically expedient actions um, rather than genuine, genuine care 
um, for for black people or people of color. Um, I don't know if I'll call him a funny doll. That's the language that I would use. Fair enough. But um, he he turns the way he approaches issues regarding identity, um, whether it's racial identity, gender identity, whatever. It just turns me off. <laughs> um, again, because it doesn't come across as very sincere. It seems very performative. Um, and I think a lot of people see that. Now, maybe people feel like they are getting or they're benefiting a lot more from a Trudeau administration than they would from a conservative administration, and that's why they keep voting for him. Um, but I don't, I, 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 I don't think that, that his whole spiel is sustainable in the long run. Um, he is... Um, I, I honestly don't know how to put, put Justin Trudeau uh, without without being um, without being very um, I guess not nice. Um, okay, well, well, let me ask you this then, because there are there are some other issues that are being hotly debated that the prime minister he also weighs in on, and and very recently it became basically a rule that you had to agree with the phrase that that the RCMP and policing in Canada is systemically racist, and I believe that's extended more broadly to say that other institutions are systemically racist. Uh, there are situations uh-huh. of people who have who have lost their regular media appearances and, and, and even lost some other positions that they've held uh, because they have kind of humbly said, oh, no, I don't really agree with that. I don't think it is, you know, systemic racism out there and so forth. And there's definitely a period last year where, you know, you, you had to agree with that statement. And I do wonder the degree to which that statement of, of, of you know, this place is suffering from systemic racism is being extended and expanded to apply uh, to other realms and other institutions. How do you feel about that? Do you, do you believe it's accurate to, to say that that places in Canada are plagued with systemic racism? Hmm. So I never, whether personally or in my academic writings, I did not start with a conclusion of systemic racism. Um, that's because it's something that needs to be proven. It's not a. It's not a. It's a conclusion that needs evidence to back it up. And I feel like a lot of people just start that as that was as a premise. Um, so I do not think if, if there if there is issues that are systemically racist in Canada, we need a lot more Supreme Court cases then, uh, because that would be contravening the law. Um, now, a lot of people might be looking at unequal outcomes, uh, so groups that are getting in, uh, um, unequal outcomes out of these institutions, and then make the case that that signifies systemic racism, to which I'm going to ask, um, to what extent, first of all, and actually not even that's not the first question, <laughs> like how did you get to the conclusion that, that disparities in outcome equal disparities in treatment? Um, and uh, would you consider all the variables, are there other explanations, and even if there might be racial bias, to what extent right. uh, does racial bias factor in? Because it's one thing for, for racial bias to be at, I don't know, like 70%, and another thing for racial bias to be at, at 10%. Um, 
So what are the other factors that, that, that come into play? And I think that just making the blanket accusation of systemic racism is very fundamentally flawed. It, it relies a lot on causation uh, when, when social services are at best correlations and correlations for a lot of variables to, to consider. So no, I do not think that institutions are systemically racist. And if there is any systemically racist institution in Canada, then I assume that uh, we would have a lot more, a lot more uh, court cases, um, sort of because they would be charter violations then. Good um, point. And and if you if if an institution comes out and proudly proudly states that it, especially a public institution, uh, comes out and states that it is systemically racist, then I expect every person in administration to resign. <laughs> um, That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> investigation as to how exactly uh, the, the policies, the actions, the, the, the behavior of people within that institution have, have, have uh, contributed to systemic racism. So it's, it's just, it's, to me, it's, it's very performative for, for a head of an organization and institution, especially a public institution, to come out and, and claim systemic racism without any consequence. If you are systemically racist, then there should be consequences for your institution. Um, so it's like put up or shut up. Right. Um, and this is obviously not to disregard or to discount uh, the fact that there are communities in Canada or peoples in Canada that are uh, disadvantaged. Sure. But let us investigate the reasons why they're disadvantaged rather than boiling everything down to race. Um, because I think that that's just a very lazy excuse um, to, to subside or to um, sort of discount other compelling reasons for, for marginalization. Well, well, Sonia, some people say that the current uh, way to rectify any sort of, uh, you know, racist challenges in society is to bring in critical race theory into our institutions okay. to teach classes about all of that. We see an increase in unconscious bias training. It's something that happens at a lot of corporations. I believe it's uh, in the school system to some degree. Basically, the idea that, look, there's, you know, you're being racist and you don't even know it left, right, and center. And here's the things to look for it. Here's how you counter it and so on. And this needs to be sort of an all hands on deck issue. Is that an a, appropriate response to the challenges we face as society right now? <laughs> We cannot solve racism with racism. <laughs> it's just it's, that's counterintuitive. And critical race theory, while a, a, I mean, that's it's supposed to be an academic approach, uh, a singular academic approach to looking at law, culture, and society. Um, as as flawed as it may be, it, 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 as well as it is, um, it should not be the basis for for public policy or for laws, uh, because again, it, it, it's fundamental tenets are antithetical to to the principles or the values of any society that considers itself liberal. Now, critical race theory rejects liberalism. Um, so I, I'm very much baffled as to how uh, any, any country or any society that considers itself liberal would embrace it. Um, so it, it, it has, it, it embraces sort of what they call the permanence of racism, the fact that racism is an endemic and permanent aspect of uh, the experiences of people of color um, and that white people are invested in, in, whether they like it or not, are invested in, in maintaining that, that status quo. Um, 
this this enduring categories of oppressed and of oppressor, and it is never changes. So the only way people of color uh, would be able to to advance would be if they embrace some elements of whiteness. So it, it's so people of color really have no agency to advance themselves outside of a quote unquote white structure. Uh, and that is problematic again because it denies uh, people of color uh, uh, agency and, and the ability to act as as autonomous individual individuals. And then they challenge the concept of like objectivity, meritocracy, um, equal opportunity, and all of that. So the things that that are the fundamental building blocks of Western societies, critical race theory flatly rejects. So it concerns me when you have a, a, an organization like Global Affairs Canada using the, the tenets of critical race theory as a foundation for its anti-racism training. These are supposed to be diplomats who are supposed to be representing Canada. So what does it say if, if you have a, a quote-unquote liberal society embracing ideas that have roots in Marxism or at least Marxian, Marxian right. uh, analysis. Um, I think I think we need to think about it a lot. So critical race theory is not just about teaching history. We can teach history without uh, using critical race theory. Like there are tons of, of, of history professors who do it every single semester. Hmm. Um, so yes, there is a need to teach accurate history and history as it happens, right. but critical race theory has a specific lens of looking at that history that, in my opinion, uh, is very subjective, very, very, um, very much centered on blood guilt, um, uh, and, and it, it, it sort of demonizes a group of people using values and morals of today rather than contextualizing um, what what the society was like at the time that these atrocities were happening. Right. Obviously, this is not to this is not to excuse uh, the atrocities that happened, uh, but at the same time, we need to consider the fact that we've come a long way, and the, the values that they are demonizing right now, so objectivity, liberalism, and all of that, are the same values that allowed us or that have allowed us to get to the point that we are today. So I don't think it has any place in in our schools, especially K through 12. I, I don't think it has any place in, in offices. It only, it should stick to being an academic theory and a very, very flawed one at that. And, and you know, it's interesting, Sonia, because there's a polling out from Angus Reid Institute asking uh, respondents flat out, is Canada a racist country? And two-thirds of respondents say, no, it's not. And one-third uh, say, yes, it is. Uh, only 5%, though, say they strongly agree with that statement. So the rest who say Canada's racist are, are a bit more lukewarm on all of that. And interestingly, to a point you made earlier, uh, people they classify as the advocates, meaning uh, people who consider themselves you know, activists on these issues, um, they are actually twice as likely as as visible minorities to say that police are prejudiced or racist uh, towards non-white persons. I, I found that you know very interesting to see that you know public perspective uh, doesn't necessarily overlap with that of, of institutions. And it reminds me of of, of your your personal story, which we we haven't really gotten around to just sort of wrapping up what happened there, where you. 
were the focus of this news article. Um, BLM resorts to emotional blackmail, says uh, Black Summit Fraser University academic. And uh, News 1130 over on the West Coast, they, they posted this story and then, uh-oh, they took it down. They said... Uh, uh, News 1130 has deleted a tweet about an article regarding the Black Lives Matter movement in an effort to ensure fair and balanced coverage. We are seeking additional voices for this story. And then they turned around later and said the article also deleted did not meet our journalistic standards for balance and its potential negative impact was not fully considered. So this, this, this poor organization is saying, well, they didn't realize, you know, there's going to be a negative impact if we if we let Sonia have her views, which I understand are pretty much the views you've been articulating on this podcast here. I mean, good grief. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think that that that, uh, that particular situation is very unique um, because, I mean, I, I obviously don't want to make unsubstantiated accusations or anything like that, but um, looking through News 1130 and its current organization, I, I understood why that happened. Um, and uh, it's, it's very disheartening that the voices of a few have overtaken the voices of many. Uh, especially, we, we're supposed to live in a quote-unquote free society that embraces different different ideas and opinions and things, especially evidence-backed opinions. Um, so to, to argue that, first of all, that my commentary um, sort of brings any form of harm to, to the black community is quite disingenuous um, because every polling, every every measure of, of uh, public opinion, especially in black communities, show that that's not the case. My opinions are not are not uh, the minority here. <laughs> um, and I think it's also very hypocritical for them to say that they're looking for other, that it did not meet their standards for fair and balanced journalism. Right. I mean, for, <laughs> for the year prior, we were bombarded with messages um, Supporting Black Lives Matter, no one was allowed to criticize. There was no, there was no effective critique of Black Lives right. Matter in the mainstream media, especially in Canada here. So I'm, I'm not sure whether uh, what they mean by fair and balanced, because this is the only, as far as I know, the only other side uh, of, of the of the story that sort of got this mainstream attention. So it's like you are silencing the the alternative voice uh, while claiming to be fair and balanced. I think that that, that that move was was very hypocritical of them, but I understand why they did that. What a situation, Sonia, to just basically talk about what your earnest views are. You're, you're an academic at Simon Fraser University. You got some some things to say about this in a pretty calm and considered way. And oops, they got to pull the article. They got to apologize for it. Well, we're not going to be pulling this uh, interview here with you uh, today, that's for sure, because uh, you've definitely <laughs> given some uh, insightful uh, remarks on your considered opinion. So it was great to touch base with you. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for stopping by, Sonia. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.